0: Welcome back to the Levantex podcast. I hope you all enjoyed your Christmas and New Year. We have all welcomed 2021 with open arms, but I do feel there are a lot of us that are still cautious and unsure of what this year holds. Now, in order to get some clarity, I have asked Chloe Khata to join us on social channels. She's also known as Leb Historian, with a PhD in history. Chloe is going to take us on a trip through memory lane and give us her insights on the past and what she expects to happen in the future. Now, just before I bring her on, I wanted to let everyone know that Levant X is a crowdfunded platform, and in order for us to keep creating independent Content free of censorship and editorial, we ask for your help. You can donate on the website, levantx.com. You can make a one time payment or sign up for a monthly membership. Now, every little helps. Now, let's get back to Chloe. Chloe, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Sophie. I'm really glad I'm I'm on this podcast. I I wanted to tell you that I like the name. I like the (laughs) X name.
0: I don't know what the X stands for, but. I have an idea of what Levant stands for. The X X is the X factor. Like People like you are experts that are here to tell us what's going on. The people on the ground, the journalists that are working every day really hard in both Beirut, Turkey, Yemen, Africa. Mm -hmm. We have um, uh, people volunteering from all over the region to help bring to light issues. Uh and uh that's why we're talking to you today. We need some clarity. <laughs> Chloe, we right. need some clarity. Okay. I'm really honored. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Now I just want to say looking back on Lebanon's history, uh in brief, you know, what has changed over the last 30 years?
1: Well, I would say that not much changed over the past 30 years. Well, I mean, obviously, it changed like um from kind of an an external perspective. There's no more war, and the in after the 90s, uh, we implemented or we started this reconstruction process, etc. But actually, uh, I really do believe that the post-war periods we just we inherited in it all of the war legacies, whether the war leaderships, uh, wartime mentalities, um, wartime sociabilities and network. Uh, sectarianism which was at the core of the civil war not only obviously but all of these wartime legacies still exist in our society and so very simply there's not much that changed and and for a period that's supposedly a peace period I think we've got too many crises going on And, and many people say that we're actually in a kind of of war, a cold war, an economic war, or anything. I think we are a society under siege on many fronts, and we try to fight back on many fronts, and it's extremely hard. And and when I when I talk about this, there's automatically this comparison between 1975 and 2019, right? What's the difference? There are there are numerous differences, and and I always get asked or or Always, I always get asked about my opinion on, you know, this quote about does history repeat itself, yeah. you know, I mean, it's easy to say this in the Lebanese context. I don't think history repeats itself. I think we have kind of specific tropes that always come back, but we each, I mean, each of these generations, the war generation and our generation uh, live in our specific historical context. We each, we, I mean, each of these generations have, have their own challenges but my point is that not much has evolved in a, in a good sense yeah
0: well, I mean, uh, looking back on this, and you just mentioned, you know, we, we seem to be a country that is under siege. So uh, we we have always also been a country that has relied on its allies or its friends. You know, we yeah. had the United Arab Emirates, we had Saudi, we have France, you know, I can the list goes on Germany. We've always had support every time we have found ourselves in a situation like we are today, you know, um, and, th- and there's always been this olive branch that has maybe been given or support given or finance given or some form of um, support, you know, we are here. Uh, And I think what we have realized, you know, since the October 17, uh, 2019 revolution is that these friends have been quite quiet. Yes, after the bomb that took place on August 4th in 2020, we did see some aid come into the country, they tried to go around the government and work directly with, you know, civil servants and NGOs. But this big discussion, which uh, is being headed by Emmanuel Macron, is still obviously we I, we don't gonna I I don't feel like we're going to see this materialize with what you've just stated. You know, looking back on our history, so. Um, as a historian, knowing these type of geopolitical relationships and Lebanese diplomacy, uh, do you find? I, I know you mentioned siege, but do you really see us sitting in this siege-like manner or isolation for quite a quite a long time? Could we resemble something like Syria?
1: So, okay, there are many layers to your question. Um, I'm going to answer them. I think in a yeah, in a layered way as well. So, I know there's a lot of discussions on our friends or allies, but I mean, can we really talk about friends in foreign policy? I mean, it's different to it's different to receive international aid when you're uh, under crisis, and it's and that's kind of a a trope of international relations. Countries do come together and offer financial help to other countries that are in and difficulty, and that's not something that's really uh, typical of Lebanon. But I think this is not just because we've got, on many occasions, money from uh, Paris two, Paris three, the Gulf countries, etc. It doesn't mean that we should use the term friend. I think this is a misleading term. And experts talking about Lebanon's real friends have an interpretation of Lebanese politics that's way too geopolitical, and that's a part of our problem. And that's for instance, something that you will find in the jargon of people that usually lean towards the 14 March Alliance and who see the US or France or other Western powers generally as the real friends of Lebanon. And what is implied here is that these are the ones who have Lebanon's real interest at heart. So I think to me as a historian, so I think to understand this focus on foreign policy in discussions on Lebanon's problem and its solution, I think, yeah, you need to understand how foreign policy has worked in Lebanon for decades. And although it's true that we have some specific special relationships, such as with Syria and France, because of many determining factors, such as geography and history. So Syria is the main big Arab neighbor, right? And we share a frontier. And so it's unescapable that we're going to have a specific friendship with such friendship i mean i mean specific relationship with this country or with france because it's the ex mandatory power but these this does not make them friends of lebanon i think we need to critically engage with the concept of friendship in international relations and all those states can construct meaningful bonds these are better conceptualized as partnerships. So we need to drop the word friends and start talking about diplomatic partners and what they can give us or bring to the table. So um, Lebanese foreign policy, okay, has taken a great toll on Lebanese internal politics over the years. Okay, Let's take 1943 as a starting point and to see how important foreign policy was in the emergence of post-independence concession concessional politics, right? So the National Pact was this pact between Muslim and Christians that stated that Lebanon was neither Eastern nor the Western and that Lebanon should stray away from any uh, unionist plans with other Arabic countries, but at the same time, not take part in imperialist plans uh, against Arab brothers. So look at how important foreign policy was in those foundational politics. So the National Pact, and then later the Ta'if Accord, they placed limits on the state's foreign policy orientation to achieve a minimal consensus among our different sects. Right. And so Lebanon's pre-Ta'if foreign policy is generally identified as this theoretically ideal neutral orientation which is best articulated by people such as Fuad or Rashid Karameh. So according to this ideal of Lebanese foreign policy, Lebanon was to position itself between the West and the, and the East, um, has to retain close relationship with Western powers such as France or the US, but continue to support Arab causes, right? And when foreign policy stances have strayed from this position, such as with Chamoun in 1916, uh, Uh, um, 57 or 58, or with Amine Jmayil in 1982 and 83, this endangered the internal balance and caused armed confrontation. So the conduct conduct of foreign policy in pre-war Lebanon was a presidential privilege. So it was the consequence of the, the large constitutional powers enshrined in the Maronite presidency. So the, the Sunni prime minister's ability to influence policy, foreign policy, was either a function of his own, like personality, his standing, uh, and so in most matters in foreign policy making, the prime minister was a subordinate to the president. But there were exceptions. For instance, like Riad al-Solh uh, or Rafi al-Hariri is in like in. Excellent ways, and, and these men, this prime minister, because of their own relationship, they were able to impact Lebanon's foreign policy. But, anyhow, the point is to understand that disagreements among Lebanon's variable sects over foreign policy choices always ended up in violent confrontation, whether because of Shamoun's uh, uh, espousal of the Eisenhower Doctrine, and then over the Palestinian movement in the 70s, or even later on, the relationship with Syria in the post-war period. The point is to understand is that the flip side to this equation is that local actors deploy those transnational ideologies, and, and the support of external actors. To to strengthen their position in domestic political struggle. So we've seen this with Kamal from Blood while he served on the Nasserist wave in the 50s and the 60s. We've seen this with Chamoun, while he served on the American uh, side, et cetera. So Lebanese politicians used external actors for domestic political power, okay? This overlap of domestic and foreign uh, policy Exacerbated Lebanon's fragility and, and vulnerability to regional pressures and external investigation, right? Uh, sorry, and, and external intervention. And the point is that these Lebanese politicians had have compromised Lebanese sovereignty because our politics are very intermingled with foreign uh with our foreign policy. So again, the point is that. This was extremely intensified in the post taif area. Why? Because the Taif agreement transferred most of um, presidential power to the cabinet. And with Syria's exit from Lebanon, foreign policy decision-making became much more dissonant, much more diffused, because it wasn't either the president or the prime minister leading the way. no longer monopolized by those big heads, but it it just became a battle between different political coalition and their representative, each supported by different external actors. So my point is that, I mean, I I just gave like a very short summary of of the history of foreign policy in Lebanon, but there's way much to talk about this. But my point is that I don't see how the solution to our current problem would forcibly come from abroad. And those focusing or or gambling on foreign support or friendship are kind of repeating the the predicament, which was what was always our main mistake, right? Given external actors or friends way too much power in an internal affair. Look at the French initiative that you've mentioned. It failed. And I don't know now Macron, he must be waiting for Biden's, I don't know. Uh, uh, just Not, see how I don't believes.
0: think any of us know.
1: <laughs> yeah, so exactly, right? So I think lots of analysts talk about talking about foreign policy should be refocusing their energy on seeing how we can achieve internal reforms that can't wait anymore. And and, and those internal reforms are going to be the key to unlocking international aid or at least accepting international help on our own terms so, and that that's my answer
0: I think that's a really interesting answer because, uh, um, as you said, we're hearing a lot. You know that that uh, we, we we're hoping that some angels going to come in and start to organize and restructure and reform our country. And and as you said and mentioned earlier, this is a complete breach of Lebanon's sovereignty. That's not giving Lebanon its own independence. It's not giving Lebanon its own decisions. And it's be as you said. You know, it's swaying opinion from one group to another, and it's um, actually destroying. Uh, unity within the country. So um, I thank you for that perspective because um, it's very different to what we've been hearing. And I think it's something that we need to start to acknowledge. And uh, I'd like to touch on the Ta'if Accord. You've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, when I was talking to Diana Asaf Nasrallah, she's also known as uh, Lawid she did mention to me that originally that uh, the Ta'if Accord was set up to be able to bring unity to the country, be able to put all different players on the table, just start to take into different perspectives. And as you said, remove the infinite power that the president and the prime minister had and start to bring it back to the ministers and actually a cabinet in order for it to try to do its duty. Now, she did mention something to me, and I would like to hear your perspective on this, that the Tariff Accord was set up to hopefully bring about a secular state, you know, to put the players on the table for them to finally uh, agree on this unity government and then, you know, pull away uh, from the uh, civil war mentality and the militia mentality and the cartel mentality and start to work towards um, a government uh, that is working for the people and the interest of the Lebanese, rather the in, rather than the interest of the Shia or the Sunni or the Christian. So, what is your what is your take on this? And mm. is this something that in history what uh, what I've said is correct? And if it is or isn't, is something like this possible? So yes,
1: the Taif Agreement. So this this. Um, document that officially ended the Lebanese civil war. So I think uh, this document has been misunderstood or misinterpreted because it is a bit confusing in some part or vague. At least this is what legal experts say. But I think in the literature, it's it's both vilified, but also like um, uh, some people also sh- kind of pinpoint to it to its good sides. Um, there's something we must understand is that at this point at the end of the 80s, uh, there was many attempts to stop the war, right? So the Dalif agreement was, I mean, uh, at the end of a series of attempts. So it was a success in this way, in the the meaning that it actually brought to the table those conflicted parties and was able to actually put an end to military uh, confrontation at, at a time where public opinion and people were just exhausted. So that's something that we should understand is that the Taif Agreement is really the result of many different regional internal uh, uh, um, elements and pressures, but it it's really not a a I, was, I mean it doesn't really fulfil or even address uh, uh, in a deep way any of the main issues that do that do I mean the main issues why we started the war first whether the Palestinian presence. Whether this very uh, intricate relationship between Syria and Lebanon, uh, whether uh, the presence of the military arsenal of Hezbollah and political sectarianism, so it didn't really address all of these issues that we started the war for, kind of. And and there's something to understand about the Taif Agreement. There's nothing about secularization in Taif Agreement. There's something about political sectarianism, and that's not the same, and I think that's a part of why people, we talk about all of these things, we want a secular state, we want secularization, but actually there's many concepts there, and I don't think people, or because they want something, of course, they want modernity, they want modernization, and these these terms for them are synonyms of, mod- of of modernization, but actually there are differences between those concepts. So, if we go back to the Taif Agreement, which, as we know, has recognized the necessity of abolition of political sectarianism, however, without giving a time frame to do so, and this is why we never did it. Right? Uh, there was no mention of secularization. Okay, so. What it mentioned, however, is that we need a phased plan for the abolition of sectarianism, which should, I quote, be a fundamental national objective. That's what it says. And and what it offers to do, Taif, is to form kind of like a national council, which is headed by the president, the prime minister, and some other political, intellectual, and social notables. And this council task would have been to examine and promote and and propose the means capable of abolishing sectarianism to the chamber of deputies and the cabinet and to see how they can implement this but it's like very vague it doesn't say much more than this and and although it recognized that it should be abolished from public job the judiciary the military security and public jobs it says that for top level um jobs then these should be shared equally between christian and muslim without allocating it really per sec, but it's it's still not really complete abolition of political sectarianism, right? So this is what Ta'ev proposed. Then we never did it. The point is that um, secularism is a different thing from political sectarianism. It's not exactly the same. So in a secular state, the point is to separate between church and the state, and that's really a very vulgarized a definition of it, because there are different types of secularism, there's French laïcité, and there's different ways to, to do stuff, right, they're not all the same. So the point is that you would need to, uh, in addition to abolish political sectarianism, in addition to this, right, you would need to separate between religious institution and state institution. This would mean that you would also need to separate religion from personal status matters, such as marriage and and inheritance law, and you would need the abrogation of religious courts, all of them, Christian and Muslims, which I hardly believe was something that's going to be easy to achieve. So, uh, in fact, a lot of us who demand secularization in Lebanon are right, but All of us, I think, are very uncertain on how to go about this and how to go about replacing the actual system, and and it's hard, and I don't think anyone has one answer. Uh, And I think, especially from what I've heard, because I've sat recently in summer on on roundtables between representatives of new alternative political parties, and they all say, we course, we want and we want secular, but but when they come all together and they talk, they're aware that secu- just installing a secular state is not going to happen like uh, overnight, overnight. Yeah. And, and and they all agree that somehow it's going to be a, a phase process, and this is why lots of them talk about, at least let us first be able to abolish political sectarianism and that's the first step and then talking about religious courts might come later because that's the thorny issue and that has to do with a lot of because a lot a lot of our our society are still very deeply conservative and in christian and muslim so i think this thorny issue about religious courts is going to be a harder battle and even the, the other issue of this very fashionable thing now about Abolishing abolishing political sectarianism it's not going to be an easy thing to do. You need the parliament to vote on this and change the law. So you would need a parliament. You need a completely okay.
0: you need a completely restructuring of the whole uh, the way the Lebanon works. And as yes. you said, this is not something that can happen overnight. It's going to be a long, long-winded process. Indeed. So just just to touch on, unless you have another comment you would like to make, I just wanted to link what you're saying to what we're seeing happening today. You know, we have seen uh, a rise and a win for independent students, for secular students at the university level. You know, they're going to they're going to be coming out of university in the next couple of years in order to start maybe paving their way to something uh, to the discussions that we are currently having you know so what challenges d- uh, do they face um we have discussed the religious challenge the understanding the courts you know going down into deep ethnographic studies of culture and how are you going to separate church from state you know it's so it's so engraved it's so embedded so our hope that um, our generation coming, you know, our new seculars, our new independence of like, yes, we are going in the right direction. Yes, we're going to be able to achieve mm. this sooner rather than later. Is mm. this a very wishful thinking? And um, do you think that these students might get to a point where they just give up?
1: Um, I think from what we've seen after the Thawra is that the, the student movement has kind of revived and, and it's ignited again. So I think it's very promising. And we've seen this recently with the, the tuition, the rise uh, the, the raise of tuition fees. So I think there's a lot of promising things there. And 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 because the Thawra has has ushered in a um, I would say new a new public sphere. I wouldn't say really the process of democratization yet. I would say that at least And just to to like link with our question before, even if we're not very close to the secular state, I I think we are on the way for for more secular politics and I think those students are the one who can uphold and 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 keep us going towards the secular politics at least non sectarian politics, so I think they can do it, I think although they should be able to pick their battles and not just focus on anything and not just go with buzzwords like we're going to have secular states we want to uh, we want like a double madani a lot of they need to pick their battles and, and they need to understand that for instance in in, in secular states there's not only secular there's also the states and before even talking about making our 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 country and our civil society more secular we need to reclaim the state and that's going to be not going to be a battle it's going to be like the, the work of a generation on so many levels and on so many in so many fields so they need to to, th- to think first of state building because that's the actual synonym of modernization it's just the, just not saying we are secular there's no point in just saying we are secular if we don't have a state a, a strong state to um to base ourselves on. So they need to focus on this, I think. It's how to reclaim state institution and and al which is kind of the, the Arab version of secular state because no one, that's not something that's that's typical of Lebanon. Daul al-Madaniyyah or this Arab version of secular state is something that has emerged in in Egypt in 2011 and in the Arab Spring. It was the way for those societies to to, to say they wanted a more secular state, but that they couldn't completely uh, uh, say because of the state of society. Well, Dawla Madaniyyah, I think the most important thing is that it should first give Rights to all of its citizens and non-citizens. It should sh- it should be a fight against corruption, against nepotism, and then we can maybe have the, the talk about secularism later on.
0: Chloe um it's been great talking to you. I know that we have some limited time uh so I think we've only got around 2 minutes left for this chat. So I'd like to wrap it up. Um for all of the our listeners, you know that are listening to you today and are hearing everything that you've got to say. Uh I'd like I like to always end my podcast on um a way for you to uh, reinforce positivity or, or anything that you would like? You, you, I mean, obviously the floor is yours. You have our listeners. Is there anything that you would like to leave with them today?
1: I think we're living in very exceptional, difficult historical times, not only in Lebanon, but I mean, on the, uh, yeah, on the global level as well. I think these are very difficult times and I think sustaining hope is the only thing we can do for now. And and it's very hard to do so, especially when I was telling you we have so many battles on so many fronts, the sanitary catastrophe, the economic downfall, the breakdown of the state, the police state. And it's, it's just overwhelming and, and and we can all feel it and we can see it in, in our society states now. We're not only attacked by Corona, but we're attacked by a mental health epidemic. It's, it's really hard. And so my advice and something that I try to apply to myself is just to keep hope. And, and, and to keep hope, you need to, to keep working somehow and, and keep your mind functioning. So activism is important. And we've seen in 2019, a lot of act, digital activism and street activism emerging. Now it's harder because of COVID, but we can still go on. And I think this is a personal battle for every one of us. I think now, nowadays, every citizen should be an activist in any way possible. We, some can give more than others. But we can do this and we can, we should continue building our digital community for now. And then once um, the pandemic is over, we can take it back to the street, hopefully.
0: Chloe, thank you so much. And as we can all see, the electricity has cut on her end. <laughs> Welcome to Lebanon. So again, thank you so much, uh, Chloe, for being with us today. We really appreciate it. We appreciate you. And for everybody who's listening, um, she is known on Instagram at uh, as leb.historian. So you can keep up to date with her opinions, what she's seeing. She is very, very active. And she does shed light on a lot of issues that we have questions for so chloe again thank you so much for being with us
1: thank you